Good morning. morning. See if you feel that way when I'm done preaching. I think most of you have heard me say this. It's in your best interest to pray for my preaching as long as you're listening to it, right? Today is especially the case. I woke up and started having a lot of trouble with asthma and being able to keep my breath. And so we'll see how long this works. My goal is to get all the way through from verse 13 through verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5, but we may have to stop part way and save the rest of it for later. So let's pray and ask for the Lord to bless whatever we do get out of this passage today. Oh Lord, you are the sovereign of the universe. You stand above and over and in every single aspect of this creation. You stand over, in, and around each of us here in this room. And by your Spirit's presence, we pray that you would penetrate to the deepest centers of our heart, of our mind, and our souls, so that we would see you, we would know you deeper and richer and better than we did before we entered this room, and we would walk away with more of your amazing glory. And our hearts be enthralled and exalted in your glory as a result of what you show us and bless us with this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's just start with reading this passage. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm really doing okay until that last verse, that my righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, or you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm okay up until that point. And then it's like, okay, this is hopeless. I can't, this is, I'm supposed to be better than they are? So, I'm sorry, jumped ahead by about 30 minutes. (laughs) I just couldn't keep that one in any longer. So what is this thing that Jesus is talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount? What is this thing he's talking about being salt? And what is this weird thing about how can salt lose its saltiness? I mean, that just doesn't make any sense to us. Salt's either there or it's not there, right? I mean, it's either on the table in a granular form, or it's dissolved into something. How can it be there but not be salt? This doesn't make any sense to us. And then 
What is it he wants us to do that's like salt? Right? So we come to these difficult places, things that don't make sense. The first thing we have to do is we have to step back and we have to do something that John MacArthur said one time. We, as the modern reader, have to go backwards and put ourselves in the ancient moment the words were spoken and understand it the way it was spoken in that day. Then we can come forward to our modern world and start to understand what we are supposed to do. So if we step backwards 2,000 years to the land of Palestine and start asking ourselves, what kind of salt is this that Jesus is talking about in his day, we start to understand a few things from the historical records we have available to us. First off, there and around Israel, probably no surprise to most of you, they acquired a lot of their salt from the Dead Sea. It was only a short donkey's ride away from Jerusalem and the majority of Israel. Actually, if you've been there and you go to the Dead Sea itself, you'll actually see them doing that today, collecting salt marsh from, from the marsh area around the Dead Sea and distilling that and turning it into some forms of salt. Sometimes they give you a salt mud. Sometimes they give you physical salt condensed out of it and distilled out of it. And they did the same thing in that day. They just didn't have as sophisticated of the equipment that we do today, nor did they understand all the scientific processes behind it like we do today. And so as a result, it was very easy to end up with this kind of grainy-like substance that had salt in it, and you would use that. Maybe you would put it into a solution and get the water and use the salt water as your basis for what you're doing. But it was very easy, as you can imagine, if you're using something that has sort of a, a muddy type substrate to it, Right? It's very easy for that salt to leach out and you're just left with nothing but clay as its base carrier. And that's what would happen to the people in that day. If they were using the salt that came from the Dead Sea, it would be contaminated with other substances and so the salt could be leached out very quickly and you're just left with this dirt, essentially, that's worth nothing except to throw it out on the steps or throw it out on the street underneath your feet that you walk on. So that's how we understand this idea that it, if you lose your saltiness, you're worth nothing except to throw it out on the street because that's what they did. You know, it's easy for us to comprehend. I read somewhere a very long time ago that, believe it or not, they do actually get ice to form. and It gets cold enough around Jerusalem that you can get ice. And as we here in Colorado certainly understand the importance of using salt on steps and stone places where ice has started to form, they would do the same thing on the Temple Mount itself. There would be some steps that would get iced over. They would throw some of this material from the Dead Sea out. And then it would, you know, of course, dissolve the ice, just like we use salt today for that purpose. And then there was this dusty, dirty-like substance left They would sweep off into the streets. So then we ask the question, what is it that salt does that Jesus wants us to recognize as the image and the parallel for us to operate in this world? And the answer is, of course, we know that salt does lots of things, but the one that was of primary interest and the one that Jesus seems to be pointing at and, and focusing on is the idea of salt as a preservative. 
right? They didn't have air conditioning. They didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have deep freezes. So how did they preserve anything in that day, especially meat? In the same way that we're familiar with our forefathers in the pioneer days, they would put salt onto the meat to cure it and preserve it so that it could be stored and kept even though you didn't have refrigeration or freezers. And so when Jesus says that we are to be the salt of the earth, he's saying we are to be the preservative agent against decay and corruption on the earth. And I don't know that just, I don't know about you, but as I started to understand that's what Jesus is trying to say, I'm like, okay, but how am I supposed to be a preservative agent from decay on the earth? I mean, obviously he's not talking about me literally putting my hands onto a piece of meat and somehow transferring preservative power into the meat, right? So it's something different than that. And what does that mean? Well, this idea of light gives us a little more understanding, but even the idea of preservative in our culture, in our society, is kind of self-evident what it means, right? We're supposed to be the ones, because of our witness and because of the living out these beatitudes that we see listed previous to, to verse 13, that by doing so, we are a preservative agent in culture and society, preserving it from decay. I mean, this isn't hard for us to comprehend, really. Everybody here almost instinctively has seen areas or portions of our society and what happens when the preserving influence of Christian ideals and Christian morals are withdrawn or fade away and no longer effective. How quickly that sector or that area geographically degrades and declines and decay sets in. So what is it that we do, though? I mean, how there's got to be something easier to understand, Jesus, than that. Not really. But we kind of overcomplicate it and overthink it. Sometimes this preserving influence is just as simple as changing the conversation taking place in a room by us walking into the room. Most of us have had this experience, if you've been a believer for a while, where there's a conversation taking place between some individuals who are not believers in Christ yet, and they're having a conversation that's a little bit on the rough side. But then we as a believer walk in, they knowing where we stand on certain moral subjects, change the conversation. That used to be very commonplace many years ago. Now not so much, it seems. But that's just one example of how we are preservative, the influencing agent for change, even in just as simple as walking into the room. But Jesus also meant something much greater than just that. If you look throughout human history, almost 99% of the time, almost every time, there is this this significant shift in culture and society towards, towards greater good 
it is almost always instituted by believers. Look at the abolition of slavery starting in England in the 1860s and 50s. That was, that was brought about by William Wilberforce and his fellow believers that gathered together to pray. We look at other, you can look at other places throughout history where the culture made this significant shift from something that was evil or not good to something better. And almost always, the instigating agents were believers, Christians. And they did so because they believed they saw something that was unpleasing to the Father in direct violation of what Scripture says about how we are to believe and act and treat others. And they took action to try and change it. I mean, look at the orphanages, especially of England in the 1870s, 60s and 70s. I mean, Charles Dickens' story of Scrooge was written in that day. Dickens wrote it as an indictment against British society because of the excessive number of orphans and the absolute ignoring them and doing almost nothing to take care of them. Of course, question immediately raises, why were there so many orphans? That goes back to uh, diseases and other problems that set out to create the problem. But the bottom line is, is Dickens was a strong advocate for changing the British culture over the fact that no one paid attention to the orphans, yet there were so many. George Mueller, who is most often known because of his work on prayer and his amazing prayer life, was also another man who, believing he was operating under the direct leading of the Holy Spirit to do something about the orphan crisis in England. He, at one point, had seven or eight orphan houses that he was operating. And like 300 orphans that he was taking care of. He never went out and raised money or asked for support for the orphanages. Yet there is story after story after story of how they would be without milk, without something, without whatever something they needed. And George would sit down with the staff or some of the orphans themselves and pray for the Lord to provide what they needed. And no kidding, no joke, like within minutes, somebody knocks on the front door of the orphanage, bringing them the very thing they needed. I mean, just almost unimaginable kind of quick answers to prayer for us in the modern era. And then Mueller himself not only just sort of raised orphans to a point where they could then go out on their own, part of Mueller's program for the orphans was to teach them a skill so they could take care of themselves and find work when they left the orphanage. And Mueller himself met with every single orphan before they graduated from the orphanage as a teenager. That was hundreds Thousands over the course of his life. Even Charles Dickens himself came to see what it was that Bueller did in running the orphanages at, that he had. This is what it means to be salt and light. Now, one of the challenges is that where does the church fit into this versus the individual call and role of an individual believer? 
I mean, we all have seen over the years how there's just this endless stream of calls that the church needs to do this and the church needs to do that. The church needs to run orphanages. The church needs to run a halfway house. The church needs to do this and do this. And sometimes those good works, and none of them, they're all good works. They're all things that you could clearly articulate as justified in the scriptures. But a, a church cannot do everything. They can't do them all. And before you even ask which one can we do, it immediately raises the question, what should we do? Well, what we should do is the primary purpose of the church should be first. And that is then followed by other things. So in the case of these good works that we often see, the primary purpose of the church is to preach the gospel, to evangelize the lost, and to disciple believers. That's the primary purpose of the church. And that must stay and may be maintained as the church's primary purpose of the thing that we do as a church. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't get involved in other good works. Oftentimes, we see that churches will often pick a particular subject or area in society and culture and work in that. And that is good. But yet at the same time, we see over the course of church history that the greatest changes that occur, the Wilberforces and the Mullers, were not church ministries. These were individuals who answered God's call in their life to fulfill the role and purpose that he gave them in that moment in history. And I would say that's still true today. That many people sitting in our churches, many of you sitting in this church, have a calling to a role and a purpose that has a preserving influence on society and culture to prevent decay or turn it around. And that's what you should be doing. Look, not everybody needs to be a preacher. Sometimes I don't think I should. Not everything needs to happen within the church, is my point. It needs to be grounded in the church, but not everything needs to happen within the church. And it's quite okay for people to fulfill their calling and it not be a direct ministry of the church itself. So now let's look at the subject of light. You are the light of the world. The city on a hill cannot be hidden. So so what does Jesus mean by a city on a hill? We struggle to comprehend this language because we are the modern reader living in a modern world. The first thing to remember is that they did electricity didn't exist back then. The closest thing they had to electricity was a lightning strike. Right? And Benjamin Franklin taught us all that you can be around for a lightning strike, but it's hard to capture it and harness the energy of a lightning strike. So what is it about these cities on a hill? Well, to really grasp this, we have to have an experience that a lot of us in Colorado have had at one time or another. Go out into the deep wilderness where there's absolutely no electricity, no artificial light, especially if it's on a cloudy, dark, moonless night, and experience total and complete darkness. 
That's what the majority of the world, even Palestine, experienced every night. Just think about going out into the woods in the National Forest on the darkest night with no moonlight, and that was the every night experience for the ancient Palestinian. Well, for all the ancient world, up until the advent of modern electricity, really. Or maybe something easier for us to grasp is driving on a long desert highway on a moonless night and seeing the lights of a city in the distance. If you've ever had that experience of driving across West Texas or perhaps Death Valley on a dark night, you get this idea of what I'm talking about with these the lights of the city beginning to illuminate the sky and you know I'm going that direction. Why? Why are people drawn to the city light at night when they're in total darkness? Because even in the ancient days, if you're walking in the dark wilderness and you see the city lights, you know there is life there. We're always drawn to the light. And the reason is because the light reminds us that that is where life is. It's a place that they could fix their attention on and navigate to in the darkness. So what is it that the light does in darkness? Well, it illuminates darkness, right? And so metaphorically, if we want to use that phrase, that thinking, metaphorically, our light of truth the truth that we have in Christ illuminates the darkness in the evil world around us. We are the light of the world, is what Jesus said. You are the light of the world. I mean, that's what he said right there in verse 14. I don't feel very light sometimes. I don't know about you, but sometimes the darkness seems to overwhelm me. I felt that this week. And when the darkness was overwhelming... I wanted to find some light. And I'm sitting here, I'm, I've just been studying this phrase, this subject. You are the light of the world. Yet I'm enshrouded in darkness and feel darkness closing in on me. And I'm craving light. Because the darkness, the dark darkness, the deep darkness is frightening. So how is it that we are the Light of the world when yet we are often engulfed in darkness. If only, if only Jesus had ever said something about being light. He is the source of light that we are light. See, how do we be light? We have to have light within us. Where does the light within us come from? He is the source of light that radiates from us into the darkness around us. He said, I am the light of the world. How do we be the light of the world? We are so indwelled by the Holy Spirit and by Christ living in us that His glorious light radiates from us like a candle in the darkness. That's exactly the kind of idea He gives with this lamp and putting it under a basket, or not putting it under a basket, but instead setting it on top of a table so that it lights the whole room. 
So he is the source of light for us to be the light of the world. Him shining through us. Okay, but how do I do that? I mean, what do I do so that I'm light shining? I mean, I understand. I get the idea. I got. I got to. I got to have a close relationship with Jesus. I've got to be in the Word. I've got to be in fellowship with Him and very intimate with the Holy Spirit and listening to the Spirit. Well, what I what do I do? What am I supposed to do? We go back to the salt. We just we just live out these beatitudes in verses two through eleven so beautifully, so fully, and then the light will naturally radiate from us. We will naturally be salt into our society around us. Which brings us to a very unpleasant reality. See, I was kind of thinking we could do this beatitude thing, just me and, you know, just kind of, just me and Jesus privately at home or maybe in the truck while I'm driving down the road, but I don't have to really do it in public. No, just these three or four verses about salt and light make it uncomfortably obvious that Jesus expects us to live the Beatitudes publicly in front of the whole world. I don't know about you, but sometimes I have a hard time just doing it in front of my own family. And you want me to do it in front of other people as well? I keep coming back to the same old phrase I used last week. You ask too much. I got to do this in front of the whole. I got to do. Can I just let just just let me do it in front of my my wife and kids? Let me just do it there. Can I just do it there, Lord? Is that enough? No, that's not enough. He's explicit. I got to do this in front of the whole world. How? How am I supposed to do this in front of the whole world and I can't even do it in front of my own kids? This is impossible. This is literally an impossible task. I know. You're gonna, I've come to a, to a conclusion that I'm just gonna say that every stinking week that we're in this series of the Sermon on the Mount. That it is impossible to do this. It is impossible. It is completely impossible in my fallen, unredeemed state to even come close to living this way. But with Christ in me and the Holy Spirit indwelling within me, transforming me and you and all of us individually, and as a church body, that empowers us to do this. It empowers us to live this way in front of the whole world. All I got to do is just be more like Jesus. Unfortunately, that's a lifelong adventure that I still never... See, here's the frustrating thing about what Jesus is asking us to do. Even with His Spirit in us, 
we still can't ever get there in this life. We, we, we just can't. In our fallen nature, in our sin nature, all that stuff that makes us the person we wish we weren't, all of that, even with the transforming, purifying work of the Holy Spirit, we never get all the way there in this life. Does, does that frustrate anybody besides me? That Jesus is asking me to do something he knows, even with the Spirit, I'm not going to be able to do. Be just like him. But I can be just like him for little pieces of time each day. And then I can start to string together more and more pieces of time instead of being like Jesus some parts of the day, I can get to maybe most parts of the day. And then start stringing days together. Then weeks. And those days and weeks turn into years. Still never getting all the way there, but getting better than I was. Right? I mean, I started to say you can ask, you should ask my wife if I'm better today than I was 10 years ago, but I'm not sure I really want to go down that road. And I cannot see itself, right? I might be overestimating just how far I've grown in Christ in the past 10 years. But he will take us there. And look, again, I say it, I don't know how else to articulate it. The frustrating thing is that I can't get there in this life. But praise God, I will in the next in heaven's glory with a glorified new body, no more contaminated with the impurities of sin and of my fallen nature, we all will become just like Jesus. And we will finally have achieved and arrived at the goal we have strived and longed for our entire Christian lives. Filled with his glory, absent from this flesh, given a new flesh that's completely perfect and living just like this. And until that day, we have to be okay with less than perfect. Never giving in, but never never giving up. And that's my... Uh, my exhortation to you today. Never give in, but never give up. Strive each day by the power spirit, not your own, to do this and to be this way. And by God's mercy, we will be salt and light in the process. Without really trying, it just happens. Have you ever noticed that? You're not really trying to change somebody's life or turn somebody's direction of the path they're walking on. You're just trying to get better at being like Jesus today. But yet, that's what happens. You aren't even looking for it. And someone that you interact with is influenced in the right way. So that's my encouragement to you today. Just love in Jesus 
and let him work out the rest of the details about who you influence and how successful it is. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your goodness. Thank you that you never give up on us and that promise is how we can continue to not give up on us either. And we thank you that you do not leave us alone to go through this journey of being transformed into your likeness, but that you are with us in every step and the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us. We thank you and we praise you because you are worthy of our praise and our love. In Jesus' name, amen.